A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi there. My name is Samir, and this is Viewer Experience, the Mobile Syrup podcast where tech meets pop culture. Today's episode is on Brad Bird's Incredibles 2. Joining me on the show today is Mobile Syrup News and Telecom Editor Rose Bahar. Rose, I'm sorry to say that you're not the first viewer experience co-host 3Pete, but you do have the distinct honor of being our first madam co-host 3Pete. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and I love the title. I'm glad you like it. Later on the show, Fardu Saseni, the National Director of Public Policy and Government Relations for the Canadian Mental Health Association, will speak a little bit about internet and screen addiction. Hosseini will also shed some insight into the subject of video game addiction. But first, Rose and I are going to speak a little bit about Incredibles 2 in a segment I like to call The Incredibles Go to Washington. Here are some credits. Incredibles 2 was written and directed by Brad Bird and serves as the sequel to 2004's The Incredibles. Cinematography was by Mayar Abusaidi, music was by Michael Giacchino, and the whole thing was edited together by recurring Pixar editor Stephen Schaefer, who also edited The Incredibles. Incredibles 2 picks up moments after the end of the first movie and sees the Parr family, comprised of former superheroes Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl, as well as their three children, face their greatest threat yet, the American legislative and lobbying process. In an attempt to convince Congress to overturn legislation banning superheroics, Bob Parr, voiced by Craig T. Nelson, and Helen Parr, voiced by Holly Hunter, work with telecom mobile Winston Dever, voiced by Bob Odenkirk, to show America that there is room for superheroes after all. Rose, you know how this works, so let's get right into it. Did you like Incredibles 2? I did. I thought it was a great movie. It was really well written. I'm not just for a kid's movie, but for any movie that comes out. And I think, you know, 14 years in the making sort of might lead to something like that, where it's just the point, every single beat is great. And every line is pretty interesting and has a lot to say. And then, of course, it's just visually stunning. So yeah, altogether, I was very surprised. I wasn't going to go see it. And then when I did, I was really impressed and I was really happy I had gone. So yeah, overall, I thought it was just amazing. I'm glad to hear that. Is there any particular line that stands out? Is there any quote that you think is especially poignant? I'm glad you asked. So the screen slavers monologue when Elastigirl is jumping from building to building to sort of try and get the screenslaver, I thought that was really, really wonderful. Just, I, I can't remember the specifics, but just about how everybody is so passive, doesn't want to break a sweat. And as I was listening to it, I was like, I know this is just a kid's movie, but like, I'm really feeling this. Like, this could be, this could be a really great, like, interlude for a song or like, it's just, and it also, of course, did speak to, I think, a, a fear of society at large, which is that, like, screens are sort of ruining our lives. Well, of course, the beauty about kids' movies is that while they may be colorful and they might have, you know, interesting characters and so forth to keep, you know, children entertained, they're written by adults, and of course, they have adult themes. So I was wondering, do you want to maybe get into some of the, uh, some of the themes that you enjoyed about the film? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I always find that interesting with kids' movies. No matter what, there is some uh, sort of subliminal political messaging, whether or not the writers mean to put it in or not. I think what was quite obvious with the movie was, of course, talking about screen addiction. And while the movie is set in the 60s, it obviously was referencing kind of more of the issues that we're having today, which it all rang very true. And it was one of those situations where the villain i don't know if we're doing spoilers oh we absolutely are always okay okay where the villain had a lot of really good points and it was kind of like black panther in that sense where it was like oh you're the villain but you know i agree with you in quite a few ways i also kind of see that sort of as a more of a modern trend where we're having to like guise some semi-unpopular truths in the forms of a villain that you kind of appreciate and then there was also the kind of idea of should we regulate superheroes which sort of speaks to the regulation of guns and that That was something that was a little less overt, but definitely worth the conversation. And I did have a conversation with the person that I went to see the movie with about, well, if superheroes existed, would you want them regulated? Would you want to allow them? So I think those both came through. And of course, also the messages about being a working mom, being a working woman and sort of feminism. So all of those, I think, came through as kind of political messages. So we've got two or three, we'll say, prominent themes. So of course, the idea that Elastigirl is the one who ultimately is, is the face of the superhero movement rather than Mr. Incredible, for the simple reason that Elastigirl's methods and her, her superpowers allow her to be a little bit more subtle in her superheroics. She doesn't need to destroy a building to stop a villain. She can, you know, just wrap herself around them or, or she, can, uh, she can turn into a parachute. She to, does to a stop cleaner people. job. She does a cleaner job, which I think is a is an interesting point to make because, uh, of course, uh, like you were saying with the, with the person who saw the film, with if superheroes were real, if there were people who could control ice or who could control water or who were super strong or who could fly or who were you know had bodies like rubber, some superheroes would be more dangerous than others, and that's just sort of a fact. And of course, Mister Incredible, his his main superpower, in fact, his only superpower other than invulnerability, is, is super strength. And as a result of that, he's just going around punching people. Like I don't think for a single second that the criminal and supervillains who Mr. Incredible encounters don't have, you know, complete body damage. And that's something that was touched on in the first film. So you brought up the idea of feminism. And I know this is sort of a bare bones question to ask about any property, any form of art. Would you say that The Incredibles is a feminist film? It's a really interesting question. So I apologize. I forget the name of the villain. What was her name? Evelyn Dever, I believe. Right. Evelyn Dever. So Evelyn Dever was a really interesting character and brought up a lot of questions for me. She, speaking with Elastigirl, that was a very fascinating conversation because it was two women getting along, talking about things that weren't related to men, of course, that earns big points in the Bechdel test. But we had Eleanor Devers saying, oh, you must be glad now that you're in the spotlight. It must have been hard being in the shadows with Mr. Incredible, always coming out in front. And Elastigirl responded, oh, you mean what, like a, it's a man's world type of thing, sort of like brushed it off. And that was interesting to me. That moment really stuck. I was like, it is a man's world. Like, why would you brush it off like that? So then you have this pairing of like, 
the villain is sort of more of an intense feminist. That's what we have that positioned as. So when you have that position, you have the good person being the the less intense feminist, being the more moderate. And so that, to me, kind of took down the whole, the level of empowerment of the movie because it was like, all right, don't go too far. Be a working woman, but sort of remember your place. So that was the vibe that I was getting. And I know I'm reading a lot into it, but that's just what I do. So that's my perspective on it. However, I would like to say that I did think that the movie did a lot of sort of beneficial things in Mr. Incredible was home with the kids and it was difficult and it showed his exhaustion. And right till the very end, he wasn't the one to finish the mission. Wonderful, great. But I do think it would have been more powerful in terms of like women's issues if the villain himself was a man and it wasn't pitting two women against each other. Do you think that the pairing of Helen Parr, Elastigirl, with Evelyn Dever, who ultimately is revealed to be the screen slaver, do you think that's, that's sort of like a way of pitting the ideas and, and ideologies of first and second wave feminism against the ideologies of, say, third and fourth wave feminism? God, that's really interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, it did seem to be two types of feminism but again it was so vague it was difficult to say you know and I'm sure the writers themselves weren't pinpointing specific eras of feminism um, although the film did, was set in the 1960s so that that is yeah. an important time for the civil rights movement in the United States it was and they didn't really touch on anything bigger in that political sphere but they did have Mr. Incredible being quite upset about the whole situation being left at home which would only sort of make sense or more make sense in the context of a of a 60s 50s era setting but it's an interesting question i don't think we can definitely pinpoint what was being referenced but it did make me a little bit uncomfortable i'm gonna move a little bit on from the conversation about feminism and still stay on the subject of some of the film's themes and this is gonna sound kind of strange of course you brought up the idea that maybe you're reading too far into it i don't buy that argument at all i think that of course all art must be studied in the context in which it appears And that being said, what I'm about to say sort of touches on one of the themes that you brought up, which is this idea of gun control. Now, again, bear with me. These are superheroes. Their abilities far exceed the abilities of any normal person. Even Olympians certainly can't mend their bodies in the way that Elastigirl can. They can't run as quickly as as Dash can. They can't turn invisible and so forth. So bearing that in mind, the movie makes a very, I would almost say, anti-gun control argument. And I'm going to preface this by saying that you sort of have to take a few steps back and remove yourself from the idea of superheroes as vigilantes. And, and, and think of them as guns. And in that sense, the, the main crux of the villain's issue is that at one point, her father had the opportunity to call the police during a break-in, during a, a burglary event, but instead chose to call two superheroes and those superheroes didn't pick up the phone. And ultimately what happens is that the superheroes are unable to meet the person in time and he's gunned down. It's, it's, a, it's a brutal act of violence against this person. And it's sort of this idea that if you had the opportunity to rely on traditional means of policing and law enforcement compared to extrajudicial means, you know, sort of like having a gun, this person chose to go with the gun. But at the same time, it's really weird because, like I said in the introduction, this is sort of like the the Parr family going to Washington. A lot of this film is about superheroes finding some way to legislate or rather counter the legislation that exists, preventing them from being who they are. So in a sense, you can read into this as uh, as a civil rights issue. You can read into this as, a, as an immigration issue if you'd like. But the movie also utilizes this sort of like Wayne Lapp 
Pierre type figure who is a telecom mogul, play, again voiced by Bob Odenkirk, named Winston Dever. And at one point, and it really is a, a concerning argument, but it, it's it's a very prescient and and in the know kind of argument where he says, "I run a telecom company. I control the message," which is terrifying to me because, of course, what we're seeing happening in the United States right now with the with, with the end of net neutrality sort of means that these telecom companies have amassed an incredible amount of power to put forward whatever message they may choose to put forward. That being said, I've sort of put together this weird piecemeal argument based on what I think the movie might be saying about gun control. Rose, do you think I'm crazy? Do you think that this movie is anti-gun control? What do you think? I think so. I think it's quite easy to read it that way because superheroes are, you know, by their very nature, lethal. They have powers that make them much more powerful and potentially dangerous than the rest of us. So if they existed in our world, I think I would want them regulated. I appreciate the idea of everybody sort of being more or less equal in society and more or less able to have the same protections and also have to abide by the same rules. And I just don't see how it would actually work without regulating them quite strictly. So I kind of, I think there's a really direct reference there, but it's interesting trying to figure out what the movie is trying to say about it. Obviously at the end, it's a bit laissez-faire. It's like, let them be. However, they do paint this telecom mogul as pretty naive. In the actual movie, I think you're sort of made to think, oh, that is ridiculous that he would reach for the superhero phone. Why wouldn't you just call the police or go to your safe room if you have one? And he's just, he's portrayed as very childlike. He's portrayed as not sort of seeing the qualities of his sister, which again, you know, we really should get into this telecom aspect too, because I think that's a huge, that's a major line as well, where it's, uh, you know, everybody hates telecoms. So I think that's a wonderful choice for a villain. And sort of going into net neutrality, there is the kind of consumer-facing version of telecoms, and then there's sort of the dark roots of the telecom industry and how entwined it is with broadcast as well that I think really makes it a little bit more sinister. So it is a really good choice for a villain, and I, and I think basically what they've done is they've, they've made one villain, but they split it into two people. There's that sort of light, consumer-facing, naive side, and then there's the darker, we know that we're manipulating you side. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is very possible to look at the Dever twins, uh, as they are, as not necessarily two sides of the same coin, but very much one villain split into two people. You have the naive side with Winston Dever, really the the forward-facing telecom mogul who would, in our world, most likely be treated as a villain, simply because, of course, like you said, we tend not to trust our telecom. We we really, we're we're very skeptical of, of any massive corporation attempting to bully legislators, or I guess in this case, lobby legislators. But of course, we have laws against massive corporations using their undue influence upon our political system. And then counter to that, we have Evelyn Dever, who takes a more backseat approach, but who uses the telecom mobiles and the telecom industry, really, in that insidious kind of way, because her entire goal is to... Well, actually, her goal, from my from my perspective, is just to control people and make them see that broadcasting and, and telecom isn't as great as it could be, while also, of course, raising the argument against superheroes. How did you see uh, right. Evelyn's uh, main goals? Her goal is kind kind of nebulous in a sense. She has two different main things as screenslaver, if that is indeed what she believes in, what she's saying as screenslaver. She's talking about 
kind of a disgust for modern society. Oh, people are don't take control of their own destinies. They're weak. They're passive. And then as Eleanor, she sort of more speaks to her personal issue with superheroes as well as her personal issue with her brother. Him not listening to her and her being sort of unfulfilled as an inventor and being frustrated with people for putting ease ahead of brilliance. So there's a lot coming together in her character. And I think one way you could also see her is kind of maybe a Steve Jobs style villain where she's brilliant and she has a lot to add to the world, but she also has perhaps some kind of anti-social tendencies where she sees people as objects that can be manipulated and does things that sometimes are not necessarily, you know, totally morally, the moral compass is sometimes in question. Well, she's a multidimensional, multifaceted villain. And I think, like you mentioned, there's quite a bit to be read in the film. And I also want to quickly touch on the the subject of superhero films and superhero properties in, in the 21st century. Well, not the 21st century specifically, but in 2018, you know, we've got a full slate of superhero movies coming from from Marvel, from Warner Brothers with the DCEU and so forth. We have Netflix pumping out superhero films. It's sort of like Brad Bird is putting forward this argument saying that superheroes are good. You know, they're they're fun. There's a lot of social commentary that can be generated from discussing them. But also at the same time, there are other stories that can be told. And we sort of should think about those other stories as well. And I think it's rather interesting because for most of the film, and this is a subject that comes up a lot when we talk about superheroes, the central question is, what is a superhero really trying to do? Are they trying to maintain the status quo by, you know, fighting crime and reducing crime? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. But also really not encouraging people to take on those challenges themselves. Because, of course, every time Superman puts away a villain, every time Superman stops his villain from doing something, he's preventing the people of Metropolis from speaking to their legislators and saying, hey, this is a, an issue. Crime is a, is a genuine problem. It is, you know, damaging our communities. It is taking away from the livelihood of our children. We should stop this. We should put a stop to this. But then the counterpoint to that is that superheroes maintain a status quo while also encouraging people to be bigger than they are, better than they are. And this movie sort of puts forward this argument that superheroes are dangerous in a sense and we should be a little wary of them and that we shouldn't stick to the status quo like you said we shouldn't be passive we shouldn't just watch television and consume media without thinking about what we're consuming which i think is an interesting take on the superhero genre mostly because of course the film ends with the status quo being eliminated the legislation that banned superheroics is overturned and superheroes are allowed to be super again it's really interesting because it also takes on 
on the issue of the cult of personality, which is such a huge issue in the States. A lot of people argue, and it's an issue here in Canada, certainly, but what I'm referring to specifically is people relying on people like Elon Musk to solve social and political issues with their influence and their money rather than being able to rely on the political process themselves as you're speaking to. So it could be kind of a bit of a takedown of that situation. But then again, at the end, it does sort of result in the idea of, well, no, it's actually, it's good. Sometimes we need these people. Some people are special. (laughs) Is that the message? (laughs) It seems to be. It really does seem to be that, you know, there are some people who are better than others. There are some people who are just more gifted and talented than others, and we should rely on them to elevate us, which is an interesting take because, of course, I wouldn't ever posit that, you know, I am as intelligent as, say, Tim Cook or that I'm as business savvy as Bill Gates or that I have the political know-how of someone like, say, Michelle Obama or Hillary Clinton. I would never say that. But at the same time, we look to our leaders as a way to elevate ourselves and to be better. We don't look to them to solve of all of our problems unilaterally, you know, we look to them as inspiration. And I'm not quite sure that superheroes are, in, in this universe anyway, inspirational in the same way. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think this whole movie is more an analysis of superhero culture and superhero movies than it is a superhero movie itself. And, I, and over the 14 years since the first Incredibles came out, there's just been this major explosion to the point that we're just at peak superhero culture now. So it's really cool for it to come out amidst all of this and sort of make its statement sort of critiquing superhero movies. And I would love to hear that perspective from somebody who's really into superhero movies. I'm not as much a, a big, huge fan, but just to hear how they instinctively felt about this movie, which you know, pretty explicitly critiques the whole idea of superhero movies, specifically with the stuff where it's like at the very beginning of the movie, the pars are saying, so you'd rather we just didn't get involved? And they're saying, yeah, it would have been 100% better. We could have just used our insurance. There was totally preparations for this. We didn't want you. There is a system in place. Is the system broken often? Absolutely. Does it hurt the most marginalized members of our communities? Absolutely, it does. But it's a system that, again, it doesn't necessarily work, but there's a system in place. And the whole point with any community, any society, is that if the system is broken, we should come together collectively and try to figure out ways to solve it. We shouldn't just say, you know, please, Elon Musk, can you drill holes under Los Angeles and Chicago to fix our public transit infrastructure? That's not the way it should be done. I want to shift gears a little bit away from superheroics, and I'm going to go back to the politics of the film. Do you think that the politics are murky, or do you think that there's a clear statement being made about modern-day America? The politics are a bit murky, but what I would say is it's definitely holding a mirror to modern-day America, and perhaps that's all that it aspires to do. Because like it or not, we are in a situation, not so much here in Canada, but definitely in the States, where more and more we are relying on private individuals to uphold certain things that should be upheld and and just morally are correct. And we're also relying on people, even if they're not extremely wealthy, but have a lot of influence to use their voices to express outrage about some of the things that are happening in the States. So I think that kind of just 
that's definitely a reflection. There's also that reflection of the the gun control argument that's really at the forefront of public conversation. And there's the reflection of more and more women entering the workforce and what does it mean and how does it even look when women are having conversations with each other? All that taken together, I actually think it's really beautiful and it's really interesting. And obviously it's led to so many great conversation threads just in the conversation that we're having now. But I don't think it provides any simple answers, probably, and probably that's a good thing. You know, art shouldn't necessarily just provide one specific answer or it tends towards the propaganda type side. So yeah, I think it's it's murky, but I think it's great that it brings up all of these topics of conversation. And of course, it's ironic that you've brought this up. It's ironic that you've raised all of these points because, of course, we were having this conversation because of a film. We're having this conversation because of what, you know, the screen slaver would say is a passive experience, which sort of leads us into our next segment that I like to call I Scream, You Scream, We All Scream about screen addiction. Now, Rose, like we've been talking about, it's true that Incredibles 2 is a deeply political film with a number of criticisms lobbied against modern living. But one of its most overt criticisms, or rather one of the criticisms that it engages with most overtly, has to do with screen addiction. After all, the film's main antagonist is a villain who uses screens to control people's minds. And interestingly enough, while we're now less concerned that television is rotting our brains, modern society is deeply concerned about the ways in which our usage of the internet, and smartphones specifically, is taking away from our inherent sociability and our general humanity. Now, I spoke with... Bartos Husseini, National Director of Research and Public Policy with the Canadian Mental Health Association. And here's how he defines general addiction. So I think addiction is measured, you know, it's important to measure how how it impairs your control over uh, your life, right? So the frequency, intensity, and duration, and then depends on if you've increased priority given to the substance over other elements of your life. And then the third is if you see a continuation or escalation of usage of the substance despite the negative consequences. So if you're hitting those three buckets, you know, unfortunately those three symptoms that I listed, then that's when you might have an addiction. So it's it's really using a substance to, a substance is being used as a way to alter your real life interactions and your dependency on that substance and a continuing the dependency even though you have negative consequences coming as a result of it, that's when you might have an addiction. And this is how Husseini defined screen addiction. All substances usually have similar pathways that they affect in the brain. So it's usually excessive internet use or excessive gaming or screening or social media use is being seen so much other addictions as there's a release of the neurotransmitter dopamine, so which can produce a sense of euphoria. And clinical research shows that excessive internet use and gaming use alters the brain structure just as in other forms of addiction. So it's treated as a substance, you know, so as gambling when there's, no, there's not much of a substance use, but the money won or lost. That's how you track it. And as with gaming, it's similar because you track it with points, right? So it's how many points you score, how many, whatever, whatever the scoring criteria is of the game. That's what the brain uses as the signaling this release of dopamine into it to feel that euphoria or a sense of sadness if you start losing. So it's, it's under the same umbrella, you know, currently under the diagnostic statistic manual, you know, the, the one that was released in 2013, and gaming disorder wasn't listed as a condition, or but it did have uh, this caveat that said it's it's an area that needs to be further studied. So it's great to see that five years later that the World Health Organization, with their recent release, has acknowledged that this is something, you know, and that that the reason that we're excited about 
it being named is because it increases this dialogue, right? So yes, the research is hazy, and yes, this only affects a certain small population of the, the population of gamers or people who who have this issue. But if we don't name it, we don't, we're not going to have this discussion, and we're not going to have this opportunity for people to access specialized services. He also added that it's important to treat the underlying causes of addiction as well as the addiction itself. Absolutely, and I think we recently released a policy paper on the opioid crisis and. One of the things it was it, it is one of the reasons why we were in a crisis is because of overprescription of medication of opioid medication. But what's missing in the dialogue is that a lot of people are using substances to deal with psychological suffering, psychological pain instead of actual physical pain. So if you address that, if you go upstream and address the fact that they might be depressed, then they'll never be using substance uses, substances. So it's somewhere here, you know. So if there's usually people who are depressed or anxious or have an underlying med- mental illness, they're using this gaming or social media or internet use as a way to cope with that issue. So if you can address that underlying condition somewhere with the other substances, it'll be very helpful. Now, Rose, as you know, tech companies like Google, Apple, and rumored to be Facebook are now taking steps to mitigate screen addiction. What do you think about some of these measures? I think it's helpful, but ultimately it's more of a patch kind of solution, more of a band-aid solution than something that will actually do much to improve your mental health. You know, just reducing screen time, I think you really have to take kind of a holistic approach to it and look at your life and exactly what you want to do and get out of the screen and think about how you want to, uh, you know, approach your mental health, uh, which is all very rich coming from me because I'm totally screen addicted. Well, how then do you feel about this idea that corporations and of course, Google, Facebook and Apple are all corporate America. uh, How do you feel about corporations taking it upon themselves to fix a problem that they sort of caused themselves? I mean, I think it makes them look good. But do I think there's much kind of virtue behind doing so after, you know, all these years of promoting, promoting, promoting people being on their platform every moment that they can. I don't think so. You know, like the main driver is please be on our platform as much as possible. So to see these solutions, it's hard to believe that they're really doing the most that they can to allow people to make sure their time is being spent wisely. Here's what Hosseini had to say about corporations trying to rectify the mistakes that they sort of created. Well, I think we all have a role to play, you know, and just given it's a whole population, whole of Canada approach to any issue, right? So the corporate Canada also needs to play a role in that. And that's that's helpful, and I think it's a good first step. But something that's even more beneficial is what we've seen other organizations do by increasing their cap on psychological therapy. You know, we recently saw Starbucks do it, Manual Life, Great West Life. You know, they've introduced $5,000 to mental illness services. So if, again, I think if you address that underlying condition of people not having access to seeing a psychologist or psychiatrist because it's just the wait times are really long and the price point on it is expensive because it's not funded by the public system. I think those kind of steps are really helpful because then people can go and get that help and they wouldn't need to resort to excessive use of gaming, internet, or social media. The World Health Organization also recently included video game addiction in its 11th and latest version of the International Classification of Diseases. Here's what Husseini had to say about that. Well, I think it's never been given a priority. So there's other substances, as you know, you know, we're, we're in a crisis right now in this country around the opioids and the toxic and, and contaminated market with fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. So, but it's never been given 
priority, you know, and I think that's why we think that the World Health Organization recognizing it as a condition is significant because now it's there, you know, it's it's been in diagnostic statistical manual since 2013 as an area for further research, you know, further, they need to look into a bit more, but the fact is that we're five years later and that hasn't been updated, but it's great to see that the World Health Organization has said, let's look into this, let's name it, and once you name it, as we'll, as we'll see, that there'll be funding sometimes attached to it from a research perspective. So I just think it's never been given a real priority. And as the generations have grown, gamers have increased, you know, and the dependency on social media and internet has increased over the years we're seeing that more and more people are affected and as a result of more and more people being affected there's more dialogue about it that it just wasn't the case five or ten years ago to have this kind of discussion so rose i want to pose this question to you how do you think we can go about rectifying the problem of screen addiction i think you have to do education for everybody but for particularly for young people because that is kind of the most the demographic that i'm most concerned about I see my younger brother say, and he's 14, and his whole world has been digital and is digital. And I think it's really important that we set the right boundaries for young people, and in doing so, set some boundaries for ourselves. You know, no screen time after a certain hour, or only so much screen time of this, you know, particular app. Because the studies have shown that it's depressing and it's not great for your mental health to constantly be comparing yourself to an idealized version of your friends. So yeah, I think definitely we've got to approach it with education and just setting boundaries, especially for young people. So I guess you would say that much like the screen slaver would, would most likely articulate, it's not about being passive. It's about taking an active approach to your own mental health to make sure that you're not letting other people dictate how you should live your life. That's right. You got to break a sweat. You got to break a sweat. Well, here's what Husseini had to say about how we might go about solving screen addiction. So I think there's no magic bullet, you know, unfortunately. Um, at the end of the day, individuals are pretty much responsible for their own social media use. But I think it's actually naming and saying, you know what, I'm going to two or three hours put this aside and just focus on the focus on my environment and just get some fresh air or something. So as we know, like we all have mental health, you know, and for we always hear the stats in Canada, one in five Canadians have a mental illness in any given year, but five in five have mental health and you need to protect it. And one of the ways of protecting it is by detaching yourself from internet and your phone, because in the society that we are, as you mentioned, we all have our phones in our pockets all the time, you know, and it's, it's just right there, but it's sometimes important just to put it aside as hard and as difficult as it might be. You know, it's, it's important to do that, you know, and just separate yourself from it for a bit and that's that's the first way to start you know is to have that healthy habit and then if there is if there's other questions or other symptoms that that you check off like if you're they're excessive and it's dominating and it's preoccupying all your thinking then we'd recommend going to seeing a doctor you know seeing your family physician or going to a cmha that can help you connect you with the right people to help you navigate the system to make sure that it's addressed and that's it for this week's episode of Viewer Experience. Before we go, we'd like to remind you that Mobile Syrup's flagship podcast, The Syrupcast, is available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, and pretty much every other podcasting app out there. Rose, where can our listeners find you? Oh, listeners can find me at Rose Bahar on Twitter, B-E-H-A-R, or on Mobile Syrup. You can find me at mobilesyrup.com or on Twitter at Samir Chabra94. You can find Mobile Syrup at Mobile Syrup on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 